my life's work and mission to try and make cloud native Kubernetes, microservices, all of these things easier for people. Yeah, so we are back with Cloud Native episode 14. And as you can see, David is here. He is about the best person to contact in the Cloud Native. Everyone knows that. Uh, he's the founder of Slow Code. Uh, Rocket Academy, and he has a number of podcasts. He has uh, reviewed various open source projects in the cloud space. He is one of the industrialist consultants, even certain where people look forward to about use case and stuff. He has a long time experience from various things, and various things, and various things. And now he is handling various things together, like he is founder of Qhuddle and the founder of Dropover and he is a consultancy and various things. So he is the person who can introduce himself. So go forward, Rockford, uh, stage is yours. <laughs> uh, yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, as you said, like uh, I'm the, the founder of the Rockwood Academy, which, you know, is my life's work and mission to try and make cloud native Kubernetes, microservices, all of these things easier for people because it's all very, very difficult. And Kubernetes and cloud native and microservices, all of these things are at a stage where it's now not a matter of if you will adopt them and engage with them and build them as your architecture, just a matter of when. Um, Kubernetes and all this other difficult stuff is now crossed the chasm, one could say, or chasm, depending on how you wish to pronounce it. And I, I want to make that easier for people and for organizations and teams all over the world. Uh, as part of my mission, I've also, like you said, founded KubeHuddle, which is a community-first conference. Now, KubeCon is great, right? It's been a staple of everyone in this space for many years now, where we all get together and we have great conversations. But the size of it has, has changed. It's, it's huge, with the last one being 10,000 people. And KubeHuddle just wants to provide a small environment of a few hundred people where we can still get together and share that passion for technology that we we all have. Uh, before I did all of this stuff, um, I've been a software developer for now over 20 years, specializing in DevOps infrastructure as code and automation. I mean, I've always been a good developer, I would say, I hope, but I, I've always found much more joy in helping my team be more productive, removing challenges and, and blockers. And I've spent the last 10 years of my life working on developer tooling, uh, you know, working with InfluxDB and Pulumi, uh, Equinix Metal and other such amazing companies and, and projects. So yeah, that's why I'm here and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so uh, like we briefly uh, you summarize, right? Uh, you have worked from the long time from the DevOps and world and Kubernetes works. And uh, Pulumi is the one thing which is like very close thing to you. You have done various uh, innovations there and uh, you are the advocate there, right? So people still are confusing about the, this role, like what is the developer advocate and what they do. Uh, what you did at the Pulumi, like it will be really easy to people and they can understand what actually Cloud Native developer will do. Last episode, we had the Hendrik from the Dynaspace. He explained various things on the developer advocacy. But yeah, like you can also you point out some things and then we can move forward and take another question for sure. Okay, so I just want to make sure I understood the question. Like, what is developer advocacy? Like that. 
yeah cloud native developer okay see yeah yeah i mean uh, i think it's such a wonderful role and um, i see that from a selfish point of view that it has been pretty much my job the last eight years now and um, but i think it's so important especially today right especially in 2023 and moving forward because if we take a look at the explosion of software over the last 20 years through open source right open source is now a staple for every software developer whether you're consuming open source using open source building on open source it doesn't matter open source and all these projects are here um which means we're now using more and more software that we didn't write ourselves we didn't build within our organization and you really don't want to be investing too much time in maintaining it looking after it like we use open source to increase our velocity as organizations and as team um but unfortunately there's a lot of it so how do we make that easier for people to onboard, look after, be successful with? And I think that is one of the the core tenets of, of developer advocacy is just these open source companies, and not always open source. Um, there are developer advocates for proprietary software. Um, I have opinions. I may or may not share them on, on this episode. But I do believe that developer advocacy and developer relations uh, starts first and is most important in open source. And that's because you need developers to speak to developers. Um, you know, if you're an identified developer working for an organization, you want your job to be as easy as possible. Fun, challenging, but the things that you don't need to care about should be easy. And I think developer advocates are in a position where we can produce content and videos and courses and tutorials and even support, right? Where we can show people how to do the thing that they need to do. Because when you've got not just one piece of open source software in your stack, but maybe 10, 20, 100, right? It really depends on your organization and how much you're bought into the open source ecosystem. Yeah. But let's take a really standard example. You're a PHP developer building a website and you want to deploy it to production, right? So you're using Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud or whatever. You've got a Kubernetes cluster there. There's a first piece of open source stuff. A Kubernetes cluster maybe has Prometheus inside of it. So, okay, we've got a second piece of open source. What about service mesh, right? You've got Solo, you've got Linkerd, Istio, whatever. More open source stuff. Uh, okay, now we need proxies. We've got HE proxy, we've got Nginx, we need Varnish for caching because it's PHP or Perl. Like these things are notoriously difficult. We've then got our databases, we've got MySQL, we've got Postgres, we've got asynchronous workers, so we've got queues, we've got Kafka, we've got Rabbit. Right, I could do this all day. There, there's dozens to hundreds of pieces of open source technology that we interact with and work with on a daily basis. And I think that is very overwhelming, can be very, very overwhelming, especially when things go wrong. And developer advocates provide that touch point where you can say, oh, sugar, right? I'm really struggling with Kafka today. Now, the old way of doing things was you go to Google or Stack Overflow, you type in your problem, you hopefully find a response, but maybe old information, especially in Stack Overflow, a lot of questions that you find may have been answered 10 years ago or even longer. So how do you get up-to-date relevant information on the problem that you have today or even tomorrow or yesterday, whatever, right? The proximity of now. Developer advocates. You can go on to Twitter and search Kafka, DevRel, or whatever, and probably find somebody. You can go to the Slack or Discord channel. You can find somebody. And they become uh, a point where you can reach out and say, I need some help. It could be via forum. It could be a GitHub issue. It doesn't really matter. If the DevRels are yeah. doing their jobs correctly, hopefully they're identifying um, the people looking for help, doing their best to help them. And that's reactionary developer relations, right? You can also do more <laughs> upfront uh try to spot problems. One of the things I used to do when I worked at InfluxDB is like, you see the same questions coming up over and over again. 
So you could keep ads on them on repeat, or you can produce a piece of content and stick it onto YouTube or onto Twitter, or you can write a blog article, or you can write a tutorial, whatever. And we're just making sure that when people find problems, the piece of content they find to help them with it is yours. Um, so yeah. I think it comes down to a few kind of key messages for DevRel. Um, I always say the first one is just to inspire people. Like a lot of the times people have problems, they don't know what the solution is. And if you can write something engaging and fun that shows them that, hey, InfluxDB can solve your modern problems in a fun and novel way, then you can inspire them with a piece of content. And then they're aware of your brand and your, your project and the good things that you offer. But that's not enough. It's like once you inspire people, you then kind of have to educate them. Um, they are going to adopt our project at one point or another. And it's okay, well, how do we make sure that they have everything that they need to be able to go forth, use the product? And that comes down to just produce, again, more content, but of a different uh, dynamic, a different delivery. Um, no one DevRel is the same, as I'm sure we could discuss. But we all focus on our, our different strengths. And once they're kind of educated and like they know why they need your product, they're hopefully successfully using your product, is that you then need to move into a more support-based engagement. It's like, they're probably doing okay, but when something does go wrong, do they have the channels they need to get that help? Um, and that could just be forums, monitoring issues, and anything in between. Even just sticking your, you know, your Twitter handle all over the web and saying if you need help with this project, I'm in final. I know that was a bit of a divergent answer and I kind of went on, but I think DevRel is many, many things to many people. To me, it's kind of this grand mission just to help people be successful with what is an evolving landscape of complexity and open source consumption uh, in a world where things are already hard off and people just want to get their job done. And if I can be a little bit of a help to anyone that's in that process, then I'm a, I, I go to bed happier. Yeah, so it is really awesome thing uh, you mentioned all points. To summarize, like, Dalbaris uh, is one of the persons who is like, that is the job which inspired you in some way to switch from Kubernetes to world to developers education or something. Uh, because I'm little, I wanted to ask this question later, but this is the time I think I should introduce the, the fact, like, uh, you were in the Kubernetes world and you were dealing with various complexities. Uh, you were also solving the Kubernetes and cloud native questions with people and uh, who comes to you, right? So, why why do you think like you you were in that category and you were doing various things and uh, you now are educating the folks and you are providing the technical education in many various things? So. What is your goal and uh, how how you switch from that part of industry to this and uh, uh, does it does it really feel happier now or how how is the situation? Yeah. Okay, so there's, there's a couple of questions there. Um, I kind of I'll start with how I ended up in the Kubernetes space, which I think was kind of the subtext of what you were asking there. But um, you know, I'm to the detriment of the people I worked with over the last. 10 to 15 years, a bit of a technology magpie, right? I see something shiny and I have to go play with it. So around 2010, I was working for a media company in the UK and one of their biggest problems was scale. So we migrated to AWS because we thought if we just build our application, we can stick it onto virtual machines, we can stick an auto scaling group on it and then bam, scaling problem goes away. Unfortunately, that's not really the case. Uh, 
um, scaling virtual machines is actually quite difficult. You've got kind of two choices you have to make. You pick golden images and reduce your release velocity, but you can spin up and scale them faster. Or you can increase your velocity by shipping more dynamically, but using tools like CloudEdit to provision the virtual machines as they come online, which means you scale slower, but you increase your, your release velocity. So it's a trade-off, right? And with technology, everything's a trade-off. That's why it depends is the fantastic answer to every question. However, we were working on this challenge and uh, virtual machines were just a constant um, pain for us because we did fake golden images because our scale demands meant that if a large news story broke, we had to go from you know, 50 virtual machines to 200 virtual machines in minutes rather than hours. So dynamic provisioning wasn't really an option for us. But it did decrease our velocity. We were shipping maybe a couple of times a week, which is still great, right? That's, that's not slow, but we wanted to be faster. And then it was around 2014, um, you know, Docker started to get a bit of momentum. And I am a technology magpie. So I was like, cool, we should bring this thing in. This is going to be cool. And everyone's like, oh, no, another new tool. But I'm like, no, honestly, this will help. Um, so we started building our container images. And it meant we were in a really fortunate position where our virtual machine install process really just had to stick a Docker engine onto it and pre-pull the image or images that we were going to need. So that kept us fast. We were pushing our container images every time we built our application. And it gave us the best of both worlds. We were able to ship fast and we were able to uh, scale fast too. Now that worked for a while, but then managing your own virtual machines and shipping containers, you need orchestration. Uh, so Docker Swarm was kicking about, Mesos was kicking about, Kubernetes was kicking about. Um, tried them all. I probably preferred Mesos the best. However, Kubernetes had the most momentum. Uh, so I went down the Kubernetes train. I know that's just a terribly long-winded access uh, answer to how I got into Kubernetes, but I'm just going to keep rolling with it. Um, so I was like, okay, let's 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 go all out on this Kubernetes thing. And it really was, we needed something to help us scale this company. Now, I moved on from that company where we were at AWS and on the clouds, and I started working for a company that was on bare metal, which was great for me because I'd been working in bare metal for the 10 years prior to AWS. So, you know, I felt at home in bare metal. I liked bare metal. And they were doing Kubernetes too. So I really got to explore Kubernetes from a bare metal perspective, which let me tell you is, is not, not easy. Like Kubernetes on bare metal is very, very difficult for a number of challenges that we may or may not get into. But this then just meant that I was using Kubernetes pretty much every day of my life from 2015 uh, on going forward. And it's just through me being that technology magpie, me fighting with Kubernetes on bare metal, me learning things the hard way. Good reference to Galaxy Hyper's amazing repository, which I'm sure we've all done at some point. Um, I just decided that I wanted to share that knowledge with people. So I got into Kubernetes through necessity, through scale at two different organizations, um, and then moved into developer advocacy because I had kind of spent a lot of my time paving a path. Like nobody picks up Kubernetes and goes, oh, this is just easy. I mean, maybe we'll get there at some point, but that's not the case now, or wasn't the case back then either. Um, so I was solving hard problems, fighting with them all the time, and I thought, I need to start sharing this with people. This is really cool. And I started going to user groups and conferences and just talking about containers and Kubernetes and how they helped us take a you know, 100-year-old media organization and bring them into the cloud era with infinite scale, infinite scale. And how we did the same with Kubernetes on bare metal and data centers. And I just really enjoyed it. 
And like I said, I, I get a lot of joy from helping other developers be successful. And like through all my career, that was just my teammates, the people that I sat in an office with. I'd go into user groups and conferences and share this container and Kubernetes knowledge with people beyond my four walls or cubicle. Uh, <laughs> it was really exciting. Like I was able to help more people and that became a bit of a passion. And it's like, it's why I still get up in the morning and say, let's go sit in this office all by myself in front of this camera, talking to myself for nine hours per day. And it's just because if I can push a video that helps even just 10 people, that to me is a wonderful thing. Um, and I've been in developer relations ever since because of that drive to kind of help other people be successful. Yeah, then from the mistakes that I've made and, you know, I am a technology magpie. It's not going to stop at Kubernetes, right? I'm now playing with WebAssembly and eBPBF and just always driven by technology. And I want to not just say, okay, I've learned it. Let's move on to something else, but share that with as many people as I can in the process. Understood, understood. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's why it's, so it is like to summarize everything, it is too hard. <laughs> so I got it. Like, uh, you have done various things, uh, which helped you to move on the Kubernetes and uh, go into the Kubernetes world. And it was really tricky, like scaling the clusters and doing the orchestration and stuff. So, uh, do you think like, it's like Kubernetes is only the solution for everything? <laughs> That's a loaded question. No, uh, Kubernetes is not the solution to everything. However, we're at, you know, there's, there's points of inflection. Uh, five years ago, I just said, no, Kubernetes is not the solution for, for everything. And I, I still say the same today. However, something has changed. And that is five years ago is I would actively discourage people from adopting Kubernetes if they didn't need it. Like if you're like, oh, I've got 10, 50 containers, you don't need orchestration. Um, you know, just use virtual machines, use a Docker engine, um, use Ansible, Solstack, whatever, to get the containers there. Use cloud in it, right? I don't really mind at that point because your scale is, you're not running into the challenges of where dynamic orchestration really, really solves difficult problems. However, my answer is not the same today. It's because we're now so far into this wave of Kubernetes adoption where we now have specialized custom tooling built on top of it. Which means for your organization to be sat there going, we don't need Kubernetes, so we're not going to adopt it. What you're actually saying now is that we don't want to take advantage of all this other stuff that people have built on top of Kubernetes as an API, like GitOps, like automatic remediation using projects like uh, Captain, uh, you know, Service Mesh, right? a phenomenal tool, even in smaller environments, it scales very well out to larger environments like yeah. enterprises. But do your application developers really want to be writing their own retry logic, exponential backoff, uh, exception handling, the contract testing, all of this stuff just gets easier based on the tooling that people have built on the assumption that you're running on a Kubernetes API. So even though in 2023, if someone said to me, we don't need Kubernetes, I'd say, okay, so what's the cost of adopting a managed Kubernetes cluster versus the reward of being able to buy into this ecosystem that has been evolving and developing around of it? And is that the trade-off that you're willing to make? Now, the answer still be, may still be, we don't want Kubernetes. But hopefully, we're getting to a point where people are like, actually, it's a net positive to just, okay, say we're going to run our applications on Kubernetes because we get to get into this, this whole world and ecosystem stuff. Much like if people were to say, I'm going to run my applications on a window IIS server, you'd be like, whoa, like use Linux. Why? We don't need Linux. Well, because everything is now Linux. 
to the point where if you need help, everything online, every every resource is going to assume containers and Kubernetes at one point, and we're getting very close to that. So I think I'm very skeptical to say that everyone should be on Kubernetes, but I think <laughs> there's a lot of benefits to just accepting that Kubernetes is an API for container orchestration that we should probably buy into if we want to be faster in the long term. Yeah, uh, yeah, but like uh, if someone is starting as a beginner and stuff and they come to us uh, and they are like, uh, yeah, there are a lot of things to learn like uh, Kubernetes, API gateways and once we learn the API gateways, you come with the other things like uh, providing the cloud native security on top of that, application networking and various things. So people are like, what, what to learn? Like there is... Everything coming uh, uh, like next day, like cloud native world is like today is there is something, next day it is coming something different, and that's why it is getting hard to hard to learn also, and also getting tougher to educate the folks also. So, what do you think like this is the evolution of a cloud native work way? Like it is getting tougher and tougher, and uh, that's why solving the solutions is nice, but. Uh, understanding the problems and learning the new things it is different right so uh i mean it's tough right like from a team point of view you know my last answer i think worked well there like you know buy into kubernetes take advantage of this stuff but as someone who's sitting there learning their craft learning to code learning to be a developer as early in their career should they spend time learning containers and Kubernetes and that's that's a tough question too um I think yes like if we come back and I'm trying to go back like the 20 years and remember me learning to code right but I was writing C code I was writing Delphi code and the platform that you write the code for is always always crucially important when I was writing C code I had to not just learn how to write and read C code but I had to build that code that meant using make and gcc i had to understand that that runs on a linux machine typically you could just windows but the tooling is different right but you have to own the developer experience and i think as that local development environment is changing even for a new person developer who's got their first day in the job and they come in and they say oh i'm just a python developer i'm just a Perl developer i'm just a php developer whatever the language is is that that code has to run somewhere and i think if you can just learn that i mean it's going to be painful right i mean i hope you work on a team where they've got a decent developer experience for local tooling but problems are always going to happen but if you can just start to embed yourself into working with containers and kubernetes as a primitive i think it will have a very long-term substantial effect on your career but i also don't think it's mandatory like i'm not saying you have to go and learn all this stuff but at the same time if you're writing code you're probably and again, I speak from my own experience. I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth for saying this is the one way you should learn to do it. But I was always working on the side. Like I finished my job and I'd go home and I'd write some code or attack on a project or contribute into open source. Like if you're just in that mentality and you're doing things, containers and Kubernetes are inevitable. So I don't think you need to learn them early on, early career. But it's definitely not a negative. Like if you are willing to persevere and persist and do the hard things, it will pay back dividends exponentially. So I would probably encourage it. Um, 
And I know that sucks because you've already got a lot of things to learn in your early career. I'm sorry, people that are listening. Um, but just break yourself in early. Start understanding containers of the things that we work with and Kubernetes is the thing I'm going to have to learn. Like, best of luck. And if I can help, and, and you know, I'm sure Roy would say the same, you know, they're always reach out. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it is tough world, but yeah, you have to do it. Yeah, like this is the modern world, modern application networking, modern application security. <laughs> so yeah, you have to do it in any other way. But it comes like it is uh, everywhere. It is like previously it was it was just uh, orchestrator or something, but it is not today. <laughs> you have, it, it is big world, and uh, we have to do different things. So coming to the next thing, David, like uh, so currently. Uh, what do you think, like, uh, not currently, present is what we are seeing now, uh, KubeCon and KubeOttle and various conferences are there, which are going around for the Kubernetes and stuff. So for the future, what do you think, uh, what is the trending in technologies which industry elites and professionals should learn? Uh, like there are EBPF, there is a service mesh, there is a WASM, and there are various things. So what do you think on this? Yeah, so now I just like, Five minutes ago, I said everyone should learn Kubernetes and it's a net, posi a net positive to do so. At the same time, I'm also spending a lot of my time focusing on a web assembly and looking at how that changes the way that we write applications. And there's some good news and there's some bad news, right? The good news is you can write web assembly in your language of toys, choice, um, compile it to a web assembly, binary, bytecode, whatever you want to call it, and run it anywhere. And you don't need Kubernetes. But the usefulness of that is limited at date, limited at best, right? Um, I can deploy it, I can run it, it can receive events, it can respond to events, but eventually you're going to need a container-based application. Right? I'm talking about state, right? WebAssembly doesn't really do that well with state. Yeah. And if your application doesn't have state, you're not making any money, right? Because it's just, poof, it's gone. Um, I think the future is hybrid architectures. I think more developers should invest in learning WebAssembly and compiling to WebAssembly and learning the tricks of the trade there, but augmenting and enriching that with container-based applications for state, like databases and message brokers and service meshes and all this under other amazing stuff that we've developed over the last 10 years. So WebAssembly is going to be, uh, I mean, I try not to be too bullish on it, but I think like in five to 10 years yeah. time, uh, so there are challenges to writing container-based applications right now. And it's, the, it's not just, you know, we have this this whole mantra from early on in the container ecosystem, whereas you build it once and run it everywhere. Uh, but I can tell you that's not true, right? Because if you build a container image, it runs on the platform that you build it for, whether that be AMD64 or ARM64. Now, we do have the ability to build multi-architecture using manifests and ship them, right? But it's very difficult. You have to build your application multiple times with different architecture. Which for now is just two, ARM and AMD, and that's fine. But it's definitely not build one run everywhere. Um, it also only runs on Linux. So again, everywhere is everywhere where the operating system is Linux. And now we do have Windows containers, but those aren't cooperable to say, or there's edge cases. Um, you can't run Windows containers on Linux, but you can run some Linux containers on Windows and so forth, right? It's not build one run everywhere. So WebAssembly changes that, and that, well, we just write our code compile it to WebAssembly, and it does run everywhere. It doesn't care about architecture. It doesn't care about operating system. It's just going to run. So I think the future is, well, let's write our applications in as much WebAssembly as we can, but they need to be augmented with container-based applications like message brokers and databases. And they're going to live side-by-side -side for a very long time and provide a just super 
amazing developer experience that we've not really had to date. Because even the local development developer experience environment for containers sucks, right? If you're working on a PHP application, you have to sync the files into the container on a virtual machine if you're working on a Mac, for instance, or on Windows. And it's slow. You hit refresh and it might take five seconds before you see the changes you want to see. This is not the developer experience I signed up for. Local developer experiences are nicer. And WebAssembly gives us the best of both worlds there too. And so we can get a local developer experience because we don't need a virtual machine, we don't need a container, and we don't need to sync any files. So I think that is a really strong theme and target for the future. Write more WebAssembly, less containers, but you still need them side by side. And then there's the other technology we mentioned earlier, which I think a lot of people in the op space, the platform space, the Linux space really need to start entertaining drastically and quickly too. It's eBPF, right? It's kind of changing the game for the way that networking within our clusters yeah. works, even beyond networking, right? So, you know, we've got CNI implementations like Cilium that use eBPF and removes the need for cube proxies and IP tables, which is phenomenal. <laughs> we've got service meshes, which are now doing the same using eBPF. We've got monitoring tools like Pixie Labs, which allows you to do zero-touch instrumentation of all your applications on the side of a Linux machine using eBPF. Super power. Um, you've got Parka, like continuous profiling, which can hook into the kernel and give you count on all the functions within your code, how many times it's been executed, and how much time it's spent executing. Meaning it's not just that we have monitoring, but we actually have the ability to profile and understand and find memory leaks or uh, CPU unoptimized functions or whatever the hell we're trying to do it. So EPPF as a developer may not be something that you need again, one one step away from what you need, <laughs> but yeah. it's very gentle. Like within two steps, there's a need, there's a use. And it's like, okay, can I enrich my own applications with more of this EPPF goodness? Um, so yeah, WebAssembly, EPPF, wonderful things. Uh, but containers aren't going anywhere, so we're still going to have to learn and work with them too. Fantastic. And just lastly, like, you know, if people listen to me talk about Kubernetes and how they need to start understanding it and, and running it. Like, we're getting shims now for Containerd that allow us to actually run those WebAssembly workloads side by side with our containers and our Kubernetes clusters on the cloud. So, like, the future is a lot closer than we may realize. Uh, and it's quite exciting. Yeah, yeah. It is a great thing. So, uh, David mentioned a lot of the points, which I always tell you, right? Uh, trendiest technologies to learn for sure. But it is not like you will skip everything and directly go and learn the EBPF and WASM kind of a thing. So, you have to start one by one, step by step, and then like learn first what is a Linux. <laughs> then only go to the next steps. Otherwise, you will directly jump to the EBPF and it will blow your mind because EBPF is nothing but. Uh, it is, it is everything, but uh, it is like TCP dump. If you know, you will come to know like what is the EPF easily for the extended uh, Berkeley packets will done. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you should explore these technologies. And uh, as we can know, like uh, David uh, has his own platform, which is known as uh, Rockwood.academy. It's like then spirit wrong. Where everything is available. He has various courses, workshops and stuff you can learn about. And anytime reach out to David, uh, I guess he replies. <laughs> but yeah, he will solve media stouts. Uh, so how is your uh, journey in organizing the stuff? Like uh, you are the technical educator for sure, but um, uh, do you enjoy that part also in the real world? <laughs> okay, so the, the question is just, 
organizing things like Kubernetes, uh, Kubernetes uh, regions, then Kubernetes, then you were also the program chair previously, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I used to, I mean, Kubernetes is a weird one, right? Like, I wish I had a really motivational story for people, but I, it was a bit of serendipity. I left KubeCon Valencia in 2022. Um, I think it was like March or April. Um, and in fact, it was March, right? Or May. No, you know, I'm not good with this. It doesn't really matter. It was early last year. Yeah. And uh, it was just so big. Right? And I said this about KubeCon Amsterdam too, right? There's 10,000 people there. It was 7,000 the year before. Um, I really just lost that magic that it used to have where it was a few hundred people. You could go and speak to people. Spend an hour chatting about some random new esoteric thing in the Kubernetes ecosystem or cloud native ecosystem. Um, where it was now just I'm going from room to room to room to room to room to room, vendor showcase, vendor showcase, vendor showcase. Like it's just everything is so fast, you're always moving and you're not really getting yeah. much time to connect with, with people, right? And the community is networking about people. Yeah. So I, I basically just left KubeCon Valencia and I was like, you know what, I'm going to start a conference. And I booked a venue on a bit of a whim and I was like, oh crap. And now I actually need to organize a conference. And then I stuck on like, a, I don't know if this is going to work. So here's like 50 tickets are really cheap. And if people want to see this happen, go buy a ticket. And then like a month later, I was like, shit, they all sold. And I thought, okay, I really need to organize a conference now. So it's not a great story. It was a reactionary oh, I'm going to do this thing. And then, oh crap, I need to do this thing. Until I just kind of slowed down. I was like, okay, let's do this thing properly. So, you know, reaching out to sponsors and reaching out to speakers, potential speakers, building a team to make it together, getting a code of conduct in place. Like there's all these things that you need to do. And it was a very valuable learning experience for me because everything I had done to that point had been virtual, like YouTube and workshops and webinars and this was the first time in a long time that I had done something where people would be in a room and people's safety and well-being would be largely and, and their ability to learn to have a good event. Right? All these things would be on my shoulders. So um, I don't want people to walk away from this thinking organizing conferences is easy and if he can do it on a whim, go for it. Um, it takes a lot of work. You need a lot of help. Um, and I'm still learning, right? We had Huddle Toronto because Marino stepped up and says, hey, let's do another version of this. Currently, we've got a team in Stuttgart putting together a Cupuddle Stuttgart for 2024. There's a team in Berlin. There's a team in France. Like, there's going to be Cupuddles popping up everywhere. And uh, these people are taking on a huge task. And it's, but it's a very rewarding task, too. Giving people a space to come and feel safe and talk about technology is just, again, really rewarding. So, um, yeah. I wish, there was, I wish there was a good thing, like, yeah, I had I had it all planned. It was going to be amazing. I knew it was going to be perfect, but really, I, I won it. I got lucky, and my plan is just not to do that again. Do it properly, and hopefully, put together a framework for other people to kind of do this too. There, yeah, yeah. Like you did it one time, but it inspired a lot with other folks, and they are doing it in various regions of their uh, own regions. So it is a big thing. Like you started something, and people are already doing it and taking it forward. So. It is nice initiative for sure, and uh, I guess there will be more of Cubital, and most probably Cubital India will be also there in some time. <laughs> so yeah, like uh, 
Yeah, so I'm excited for your journey, like where you will go from now and you're already done various things. So I guess that's all for today uh, because uh, I don't want to take more of your time and most probably we'll connect again if we have different use cases to talk about. We will come with some demos for joining this talk and I really appreciate your time, your coming here. And so, yeah, you have any last words to speak and share with our audience? which are students and professionals uh, in the cloud and DevOps space. Uh, and just the same old advice that I say every time, because I don't think it can be said enough, and is that, you know, learning to write code, learning to shift containers, deploy to production, operate in Kubernetes, all of these things are hard. And we need to get better and prevent a safe space where people can just say that I don't know. Um, and I like to lead by example there and say, I don't know more than anyone else in the room. And I do that on my channel and I do that live and things like this. But yeah, let's, let's make technology easy for anyone to come along from any background, be successful and have fun. So learn to say, I don't know, share your knowledge as much as you can in public and blogs and videos, wherever you're comfortable with. And let's just all build a collective knowledge and wisdom together uh, and have fun doing that at the same time. Um, and thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, uh, David. And thank you for joining our today's talk, everyone. So do, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And also check out Rockwood Academy, uh, which is David's uh, YouTube channel. I will share the link below and various resources he, pro he provides every time. So thanks for joining. Yeah, keep that segment for the next episode.